0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. It was called a slice of bread and jam. It came out in 2015, and um, here's the author, uh, Tommy Radigan. Thank you for taking the time.
1: That's fine, Al. How are you? And hello, America. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm okay.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm okay. I don't know if America is, but <laughs> but I
1: well, uh, it's it's no different from Britain, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, all sorts of issues
1: nowadays. You
0: uh, know, yeah. now you wrote uh, now, you, like you were telling me beforehand that this was going to be it's part of a trilogy, really, and I know there's uh, another book out and and everything, and I've only been through the one. I, I found it quite. Um, enlightening in certain ways and very entertaining and you are quite honest in your um, Writing about things like you don't hold back um, wh- What got you into telling your story?
1: Uh, 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 if I <laughs> a Rather strange way of saying this, but it was my uh, psychotherapist nurse that actually got me to do this I've suffered with mental health problems, uh, mental health issues, should I say, for the best part of my life. Basically, because of what happened during the period of my, my childhood. Uh, and so, I, if you like, uh, I don't deliberately reflect back on my childhood, but I, I have times when flashbacks, uh, something happens and then I get flashbacks uh, to that childhood. Uh, and one of my ways of... of, of you know, perhaps coming to terms with a lot of my problems was to, suggested by my uh, psychiatric nurse, to perhaps think about writing about my life. Uh, and that really was what I decided to do in the end, was to write. But in doing so, and as you say, was well, uh, very honest enough upfront not looking for any self-pity, or any pity. I've got no self-pity at all. Uh, I'm happy with the life that I've got, but I had to do this to be honest with myself. Uh, so when the reader reads these books, especially the other book, because it's very, very brutal, and it's, uh, you know, the events and the topic and what goes on in that book, it's because I'm being brutal to myself I've not really been grateful for the readers to read because that's the whole point in... I've opened up the box that I've kept everything in and rather than just visit now and again the, these demons, the, I've opened the box and I've let the doing in the And basically, you know, I'm feeling a lot better for it, to be quite honest with you. So, yeah, I'm sharing a journey, a long journey. And I'm sharing it with people, with readers, uh, and anybody who wants to come on that journey, can yeah. enjoy
0: it as you did that. This 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 book anyway, it, it tells a lot about um, you when you were young and kind of the the lifestyle you were living. Um, yeah. And you weren't alone. There was a lot of kids probably in the same boat as you, so to speak. Absolutely. And and so okay. you were, you were in the Hume uh, area of Manchester, which was kind of uh, not the best area, we say.
1: Well, Manchester during that period, I mean, it was 1963, but it would, looking back on it, it would take you back to the Victorian era because a lot of Manchester hadn't changed from that period. Uh, And so, you know, you've got, you know, hundreds and thousands of houses there that are terraced houses, Victorian slums, if you like, especially here. I mean, it, A lot of it was all Victorian slums, gas lamps. Some places had the electricity in the main areas, you know, the city and whatever. And these back streets, if you like, these are all lit by gas lamps in 1963. Chimneys, night times in the winter, you know, spewing out the fire smoke and, 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 and anything that anybody could burn to keep warm. So you can imagine what it was like you know smog uh thick smog sometimes it, it was just a complete lots of wastelands and, and, and whatever you know so and during that period of time there was also if you like the rejuvenation of uh, healing where they were knocking all these uh houses down mm. uh, the slums and and, and, and whatever uh, and, and then and of course there was also empty buildings and from the Second World War, which had been bombed and Manchester still hadn't recovered fully even in, in, in that era from all this. So there's quite a lot of things going on. Absolutely children's playgrounds, all these places. Absolutely loved it. You know. Running in and out of these bombed houses, scavenging, searching for anything, picking up the odd photograph and looking at it and wondering who had lived there and you know, I used to get all these sort of feelings, ow you know, I, I I don't know why I have these feelings, but I absolutely love being in these places, uh, and just to feel a part of somebody else's life, which is a strange sort of thing when you're sitting in somebody else's ruined house and you're picking up, you're looking at a photograph and you're walking from empty room to empty room, dodging floorboards that are up in big holes in the floors that will, if you drop through, you'll, you'll drop through downstairs into another room, you know, it's, uh, it was
0: brilliant. Now, a lot of these houses were abandoned. And, you know, did people not really have enough time to get out or they just weren't given time before they were going to be destroyed? Like, how did that work for listeners?
1: Well, okay, basically what would happen is that the houses anyway, were just left to them, to, 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 you made the best out of them what you could. Uh, these were damp slumps. Uh, ours had no... Uh, the only place that we had electricity was down in the back room. The rest of it was all gas. Uh, and we couldn't afford gas. My parents couldn't afford gas because they had to go for their drinks. So we was basically in darkness most of the time. Uh, in the kitchen, you would have one sink, one cold tap. There was no hot water. There were no bathrooms. And you had an outside toilet. Now, there was 15 of us all together in that house. Can you imagine us queuing enough to go to the toilet outside, <laughs> especially in the winter? Yeah, especially in the winter, Al. It was absolutely horrendous. So it was go where you can. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that's basically what it was like. And and, and then people would be, be be issued with with notices that they had to leave. And these notices were given a week or so to to collect the belongings or, or whatever. Uh, it's all there in the book, you know. It, it yeah. explains everything in the book, and I'm sure that, you know, when you were listening to it, you were there and, 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 and seeing what was going on, and you know that's it's, it, you know, it's there. Uh, and then people are out. Sometimes it would take a year before you cleared the whole street. In our streets, I think there was only about five houses that were actually occupied. Perhaps six houses that were occupied. The rest were empty. Yeah. Uh, and then once everybody. Yeah, once everybody, we loved it, because we can go and smash the windows. Yeah. yeah you know, something for all the children to be able to, to, to lose to these places. And then once they were out, once everybody was out, in comes the ball and chain. I don't know if you, 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 you know, the people in America know uh, the expression of ball and chain, because that's what it was. It was a huge uh, 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 sort of metal ball weighing tons on a chain, and they just swing it straight into buildings. And that was it. You know, everything down.
0: Yeah. How, uh, in an area like yeah. that, how was it policed? Uh, that's one thing I'm I'm not sure about. Like, were there a lot of police, or did they sort of ignore it? But the, the, the police were
1: there. Uh, you saw, you know, plenty of police on the beach uh, in the main uh, streets, if you like. Mm-hmm. I very rarely saw a police officer. Unless he came to my house to, 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 to arrest my father or drag him drag him out because he's, you know, mm. assaulted somebody and get a hold of him. But besides that, you know, I mean, we saw the police quite often. I mean, I saw the police... Uh, I've been to the police station about 187 times, I think, <laughs> on the last count. The magistrate apparently says because that's the amount of times... I suppose arrested, if you like, uh, it was for grand larceny, which sounds absolutely horrendous. But uh, grand larceny was either stealing sweets from a shop or stealing bicycles, which we normally did, just to get around. Wow. You know, so, yeah, the police were there, but I wouldn't say the police were there, you know, they, they were in the hot spots
0: right yeah like, and and I'm surprised yeah. your your father seemed to be in the same sort of lifestyle, and in fact, he used you on certain things like when you pretended to be that lady's grandson and stuff um yeah I mean, so so you you were in a way kind of brought up with that that lifestyle do do what you have to to thrive uh,
1: well well it, I, I, that mentality mentality should I say wasn't in my head in the sense that. I just did what I was told to do. It for me I didn't think I was doing anything wrong because I didn't have to stop and think is this right or wrong. It was it was life. That's the way I was brought up. Uh, and so that was life. I didn't like, you know, when I look back and I'm not proud of, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but it wasn't my fault. I just did what I was told to do. Um and I stole food to help my family. I begged for money on the streets to help my family. You know, everything I done was to help my family. It wasn't to help me. Uh and and of course a lot of the money we collected to help my mother and father to get drunk. Um, we were glad that we were out of the house until they came back and started beating up on us or you know, one of the other family or even beating up on each other. Yeah. Uh that's what it was like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Now, you were, you were um, Irish descent, correct?
1: I was born in Ireland.
0: Right. And and one thing that took me was when you were talking about, now this is something that surprised me. I didn't realize this was going on, about the signs on certain places saying no Irish blacks or dogs. Yeah,
1: uh, well, well, actually, the, 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 I think the dogs came first. No dogs, blacks, or Irishmen. Uh, you know, so yes, and and I re, I recall seeing lots of places with this on, and yet you look at the buildings going on, and what do you see? You see uh, uh, black people on the building sites. You see Irish people on the building sites. As far as I see it. The Irish and the Blacks built Manchester, or rebuilt Manchester, should I say? You know, and yet, and yet, we're not allowed to to even. they were not even allowed, or there was no vacancies to put these these, these people up. Yeah, this reading, it?
0: yeah, that's uh, you know, I, I I had no idea that that was that that go, that went on. I think that's a surprise and something we learn uh, over here. We had no idea. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah they, now, when did they stop doing that? Like, when did they change that?
1: I, I, well, I'm, 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 I'm not too sure actually, because you know, I mean, my father didn't care whether he wasn't welcome anywhere. Anyway, he'd let himself in, and he'd sooner if he found out he wasn't welcome because you know he'd be thrown straight out. But you <laughs> know, I, I'm not sure. I, I should think perhaps the, the, the come towards the. Perhaps 1978s, 80s, but I, I know that all this stems back way back into the 20s, 30s, 40s. You know, my father was an MP in the military police during the Second World War. He served out in India, and so he did. He actually, he actually uh, uh, absconded from the Irish Army because he was in the Irish Army. He was only 16 years of age at the time. Uh, and a lot of uh irish uh men went able from the irish army and joined the british army to fight hmm. for this country yeah. and yet you look around and you see these signs up no dogs because they were more important no blacks no irish people <laughs> oh, <laughs> and when just... <laughs> you it's 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 amazing really when you look back on it but everybody you know it was acceptable
0: yeah yeah so now when you you talk about running into uh your your little um escapade there when you ran into Myra Hindley and uh, Ian Brady when now before we get into that was this kind of a common thing uh, that you could be invited for for food or different things, like this was sort of a, it wasn't really unusual for you?
1: It wasn't unusual for me at all, or all, all my brothers and sisters out. I mean, basically, what we used to do, or what we would have done, we would have gone to one of the uh, the Catholic uh, uh, convents, and we banged on the door there, and it was always, is there any food after meals, sister? And depending on who was on and what mood she was in, she would go, I'd door the door in your face, or she would go and uh, find something, uh, slops or wh- whatever leftovers there were, and it would be thrown together in a big metal tin, a cooking uh, uh, tin, and then we would take that and go across to the park, and uh, just, you know we would eat it. And when I say we, I'm talking about six or seven of the youngest. We would we, we would be there scopping all that down, and then we would bring the empty pan back, lick clean, by the way. You know there would not be a so uh, and we'd bring that back to the the, the uh, convent because we'd know if we did we would not get anything else but invariably sometimes we would be told to clear off I mean we had one mother superior an Irish woman telling us you know that us Irish tinkers should get back to our own country this is from this is from an, this, this is from an, an Irish. Mother yeah. Superior, whatever she was, telling us those, those Irish thinkers should get back to our own country, tell our fathers to go and get the job, and then we wouldn't have to be begging on the streets. And she she would just slam the door in our face. But yes, invariably we we this is what we done. We 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 had to beg on up the streets. Uh, and now and again, we would knock on somebody's door and ask for a drink of water, uh, and you would always get somebody who would say, "Look." Come in, you know, and and, and and have some biscuits or, you know, whatever. And sometimes people would would put beans and toast for us, and you know, any anything just to give us something to eat. I mean, there was really, really, so many kind people out there, and 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 luckily there were because that's how we survived that, You know, because of yeah. those people. I was
0: going to uh, so, so it, when you met uh, Hindley, like she. Um, kind of um invited you back and you guys uh ended up going back to to their place oh, now you you ended up leaving um kind of scared i'm just wondering yeah. now did you ever have that other any other people or that kind of experience with others that had invited you
1: uh no not really i mean the only other experience a bit of a weird experience we had was was myself and my brother and my sister nancy uh, and we knocked on a house, and a, a, a woman came, auntie, an oldish woman, and she invited us in. And all around the place was all lighters. Her husband collected lighters. Uh, and she says, you know, she wanted us to have a bath, and we all jumped into the bath together. She brought a towel in and dried us off and whatever, nothing untoward at all. Back on with our <laughs> Back on with our dirty, mucky clothes again, and uh, they made us—I can always remember sausage egg, and chips and beans. Uh, and we scoffed all that down us. And then she—the only thing she asked when we were leaving was, could she just pat our pockets? so that We hadn't stolen anything, and we were quite aghast by this. I mean, we left there; we would never have dreamed of stealing anything from somebody like that who was just begging. You know,
0: yeah. and I
1: know that people. I know that people look and say, "Go, hang on a minute, you stole from other people," but the fact is, I only stole, or, or I did, well, I didn't steal. I was just opening up a door for my father to come in. I stole from shops. I stole from big supermarkets. These people could afford to, to to lose a bit of food because half the time they would throw the food out the back anyway. You know, so. You know, we would never have taken anything from, from people. That so that was about the only weirdest thing that I had. Most people were, were very, very kind to us. had not says that as well. We we would probably would have gone back if it had been a woman on her own or, and a man. But we would never have gone back with a man on his own. Uh. Uh, for just simple reason. They were the strangers that we were taught. Don't speak to strange men don't accept sweets from strange men. Strange men can be horrible. Strange men can do horrible things to you. What those horrible things were, well, we don't know. Sweets didn't sound very horrible, but, you know, it's it's how, how you perceive everything, or how adults perceive it. And the repeat is not to speak to strange men. So, so, when I... Sorry, go.
0: No, I was just going to say, so, Myra Hindley, she didn't really, uh, when she first talked to you and all that, you didn't get um you didn't think she was anything different or weird
1: she she seemed just like one of the ordinary nice people that you see you know that would approach you and you're all right kid you all all right lads just that sort of nice person uh you know she seemed sort of you know, fine when i was talking to her i mean i was sitting on the swing and as she came over to me i slowed the swing down I let it slow on its own momentum, uh, and I looked at it. Don't forget, I mean, I was a bit of a, a cheeky a little sod at the time, you know, So, and I wasn't scared of anything or anybody. Nothing scared me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, you know, don't forget, we were children, seven years of age, out the, out, out the streets at night, perhaps two o'clock in the morning, and we come across all sorts of people, but we, we were streetwise. We were able to read people... One of the good things, uh, one of the reasons why I admire Indy as well, as I should point out, as streetwise kids, when one of the things we used to do, begging, is we'd have a penny. We'd start off with a penny, each one of us, and then we would ask a stranger walking past, excuse me, do you have two halfpennies for a penny? Now, they would feel in the pockets and take out and give you the two half pennies. Most of them wouldn't take the penny. But a lot of them did take the penny, tight-ass kids. But a lot of them, I know you're not going to put that but a lot of them did take the penny. Uh, Sorry, uh, a lot of them wouldn't take the penny. And so you could tell, you you learn over a certain amount of time by looking at people's eyes, whether they're going to walk past you, whether they're going to give you a clip around the ear and tell you to F off, or whether they're going to stop and do the change, and whether they're going to not take it. You just know uh, and so with Myra Hindley, her eyes, she just she just looked like an ordinary, everyday young lady, if you like, uh, that was interested in me. And she came over and she had a chat, and I didn't find anything untoward about her. She's quite shy, actually, quite coy. One
0: one thing um, um, that's uh, conf- probably confusing for. Um, Americans and Canadians would be. When you guys um, were walking back to her place, she wanted you to um, walk separately and kind of pretend you didn't know each other. Why would that be? Well,
1: this is, well, I can only gather now. I mean, at the time, for me, it was, I could see a point because we were always warned not to be with strangers. Uh, and I can remember when Mara Inley was talking to me and she asked me, uh, was I hungry? she basically answered the question for me. I didn't even say yes. You know, she, she said, you look hungry. Uh, and that's when I said, yeah. Because she asked the question and answered herself, you know. Yeah. Uh, or answered it for me. Uh, and then I went to hold her hand up. She held the, 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 the uh, metal chain in the swing. I went, I got off the swing. I went, lifted my hand up to hold her hand. And she sort of pushed her hands into her pockets. Uh, and started to walk away, and she says to me, well, don't walk with us, follow, follow me, because you mustn't be seen, you mustn't let other people see, see you, because you'll get into trouble. Uh, and I just took that, is that if I'm seen with a stranger, I'm in for it. Because it's wrong. It's, that's what I've always been told. And so that's how she got to follow her. She walked about, I don't know, six or seven yards, perhaps ten yards away from me, and then she just looked over at the shelves and says, Come on, and so I followed her.
0: Hmm. It's, it's kind of, um, it, it, what, if you, <laughs> you were lucky you changed your mind when you got there. Um, what, I, I just, uh, so when you get into the house, what was your feeling of, of Ian Brady himself?
1: Well, prior to that, Ian Brady disappeared because as I was walking and following Myra Hindley, Ian Brady then... I mean, I didn't know the names, by the way, so, I mean, which, you know, at that moment in time. But Ian Brady, he started following behind. And he he was about 15 yards behind or something like that. And that pace, that gap between all of us was kept. Hindley would look around now and again to make sure that I was in sight. And then at one stage... Uh, in the book, he disappears, uh, Brady, I don't mean by magic either, he just, he wasn't there anymore, so he's obviously taken a a completely different route, Uh, that didn't mean anything to me, because he could have gone into that pub that we just walked past, or whatever, but once we got to the house, and she called me from the alleyway, because we walked down, uh, uh, some alleyways, and some uh, uh, alleys if you like or alleyways some are just small crossover alleyways where you cross from one street into the next street and then some alleyways follow all the way down that road some are long some are quite wide and short which are the ones that cross over the street so we'd actually gone down an alleyway from one street into where they lived and she was at the door as I got to the end of that short alleyway and I was watching her and she opened the door and beckoned me to come on. And as I got to the door, Brady just suddenly appeared. He was so he must have been in that alley, perhaps he would just walked from around the corner. But he was there, uh, hand on my shoulder, no push, no nothing. Just a gentle guide guiding me in and I followed Hindley in. Uh and I looked up into Brady's eyes as we as he closed the door. Uh and he just looked at me, he wasn't smiling, he wasn't doing anything really, he just seemed like a, an ordinary person. I didn't really take much notice of him, and followed her into the back room, where he disappeared into the kitchen. He took his coat off, and went into the kitchen. I mean, basically, we're, we're, we, we were inside the, the, the house, uh I'm in the living room, and it is a bit of a dump, actually, to be quite honest, I was surprised of how old it looks considering they were quite a young couple, quite smartly dressed as well. Uh so I was a bit surprised. I was looking around the place. I mean it was a lot better than the place of Egypt in I mean I must admit and had quite a lot of interesting things in there. But uh, she took her clothes uh took her clothes up took her toes off uh, took a scarf and whatever it, it was a black scarf. And and this is one of the things that I've always got to me. She she had this long, very long black scarf, very thin, uh it could have been silk black scarf. Uh and she folded that once and then twice and then put that over the back of the chair. And she went into the kitchen and there was a bit of chatting going on in there. I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was quite m- mumbles. Uh, and she came out, and it's the way that she pushed this plate down onto me. She had a, a thick slice of bread. It was uncut bread, so she'd obviously cut the bread. And it was thick with jam, and she sort of... It was just the way that she dropped it down onto the, the table to hurry up and get it down. Yeah. And that's when I looked up at her, because it was just that. And I looked up at her, and I saw a complete different change in her eyes just completely different I, I don't know what it was but there was just a completely different change in her eyes in her looks I don't know whether it was nerves I just don't know but it was completely different and although it didn't worry me too much the, the thing that did worry me the most or the thing that got me the most was I looked down at the bread and jam and for the life of me I looked and saw that there was no margarine on the bread. It was just the bread and jam. <laughs> uh, and don't don't ask me why that was, because I would have eaten anything, but it was just that. It was, oh, there's no margarine on it. And I don't know, just things were happening then. Things just didn't seem right. She seemed a bit... I don't know, nervous. I mean, remember she sort of put one hand down on, on onto her other hand, uh, like holding it and walked away from me. Uh she came back, I remember, with a a glass, a tumbleful of uh, sherry. Now, why did I know it was sherry? I could smell it, it stunk. Uh and she put it down at the side, she'd gone upstairs. I heard her got the stairs, and then she came back down within about two minutes, picked the sherry back up again and asked me what was wrong, and I asked if I could have a glass of water. And she went into the kitchen. Now, the sherry, the reason, what was what starting to pop me off now is I, I, my parents drank sherry, and it was cheap stuff, and you could smell it. And they got drunk on it, and we got beat on it. You know, it was. Mm. This is the thing that all started him off before he went out. So, I'm not very comfortable with with drinks being around him and that smell. And then I heard a conversation going on. Again, I can't understand anything. I'm not even trying to really listen. But I heard him shout, "Fucking wait. Oh my! Wait, wait. Hmm. That's what that you snap at her. Oh my! Wait. Yeah. Uh, and straight away, that is my mother, that is my father, drink, arguing, I'm going to get hurt, I've got to get out of here, I need to go. And that's the reason why, and the window was right next to me. And that's the reason why, I went for the window, and not the door, just straight for the window. As I, as I, uh, The the, the thing that frightened me uh, uh, the most, as I opened the window, it was stuck. It opened to about three or four inches and stuck. Uh, And the first thing I'm thinking is it's the same as what my father had done to our windows. He put wooden blocks on the sash windows so you can only open up to a certain height so nobody can get in. Or perhaps it was to keep us in, I don't know. You know, but nobody can get in None of us could get out unless we went out the door. But that's what I'm thinking. And I'm just, for the life of me, I feel ill. I'm shaking. I'm terrified. Not because of them, because I can't get out. I'm stuck in here and I want to go. Uh And I'll just keep pulling at the window. And suddenly the whole lot just shut up. I heard this noise. And what it was, it was one of the weights the side of the sash must have got stuck. And it suddenly dropped. And the window shot up. And I just shut out the window. And that's when Myra Hingley grabbed the hold of the back of my heel. I heard her shouting, the little sh- Oh, my. And she grabbed the back of my heel. Uh, but my momentum just kept me going. I was gone before she could even get a good grip on me. I was over that wall. And like a ferret, I was gone. You know, hmm. uh, so did did they change, chase you
0: much down the road? or?
1: Well, I don't know what happens. Uh, I, I, I remember being so scared. I, I I didn't run down the road, actually. I, I, I ran through, I squeezed through an old, uh, uh, it was an old, like, Victorian basin, uh and there was wasteland on the other side of this alleyway. So I squeezed through that and just carried on running. And then I came back. Uh, a couple of roads away through, through quite a big gap, uh, I could hear some people coming along. And so I ran in between two houses where there was a, an empty house that had just been knocked down. Uh, there was a pile of uh, debris there, and there was also a, uh, a green door, the outside toilet door. And I just crawled in and hid on, up underneath that. And somebody came across there, I could hear some footsteps coming across there. uh, uh, And I saw a pair of shoes standing right next to where I was up underneath. uh, And then somebody started peeing. Mm. Uh, Some of it did splash on me. And I can remember them dropping a cigarette and they were weeing on that, peeing on that. uh, And then the feet went. Uh, I wait for, I don't know... 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then I was up, gone. And I carried on begging uh, on the streets. And I came home, I think I made about, I think I made about eight when I got home. It was something like that. And I gave it to my sister, who was quite angry because we'd always promised that we'd always stay together with, uh, this is my my, uh, sister Maggie. Mm-hmm. But we promised that we'd stay together, Frank, and, and my sister, she was angry that we didn't keep to that, but circumstances had, had it. As you, you know, you know in the book, that we got separated. But that was it. That was, mm-hmm. that was Do you it. ever wonder
0: what would have happened if you would have stayed? If you would have been one of the victims?
1: I, I certainly know what would have happened. Uh, not, not not physically. I don't know whether I would have been tortured or sexually abused, uh, but. I think that's what would have happened, but I know that day when I followed Marie alien to at home, I was actually following her to my own death, and I think that's what scares me so much. Uh, well, I wouldn't say scares me, but it, it does give me nightmares,
0: uh,
1: and I do reflect back on that, and there are certain times when it could be a smell, smell of a fire outside, it could be anything. It's just a certain thing. Uh, and and I, so it just takes me back, I just, I just, go back to it, and it's quite scary, you know, to think these things, uh, and yeah, it is really, really frightening, you know, so, especially, you know, when I've read, and, and, and I understand what happens to these other uh, mm. children, I mean, I am friends with uh, Terry West, uh, it was his sister, that was, uh, one of the victims, and also, uh, Terry Kilbride, which is John, because it was mm. John Kilbride. John Kilbride was taken a week after I actually got away, uh, from these people in November. And so that's, and sometimes, you know, I feel guilty, you know, I feel, God, you know, it, it, you know, would he have died if I, if I, would he have been killed, if I had been killed? Would that satisfy me for that? Um, Tom, I, I, I just, I just don't know, but it's a horrible situation to have to go through in your own head and think of this because there has been quite a lot of things there, uh, you know, because of, uh, Jungle uh, I'm told by many people and I'm sure they're right. You know, look, it happened. In fact, that, that's, that's how it's happened. You, you, you survive Right. Mm. But, yeah. You
0: know. Yeah. Did 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 you ever try to make contact with either one of them before they died in prison?
1: Oh yes, uh, I, I I I was talking to some friends of mine here. Uh,
0: we were having a Christmas party,
1: and one of my friends is a, was a junior lawyer at the time, uh, a journalist. Sorry, was a, that was the other one. who Was the lawyer, and we were chatting about things, and they were coming out with stories. Every year we tell each jokes and tell each other stories and whatever uh and i came out it was my turn to tell a story normally i would tell a, a, a joke an irish joke or whatever and i decided this time that i've told him about my meeting with the uh, encounter with my heavenly grady because this was the part now that i'm starting going to start writing the books and, and whatever and so i just wanted to see what the reaction was and so i told him the story uh, go into a bit more detail on what I have to you, but it's there in the book. Uh, anyway, by the way, the book's called 1963, A Slice of Bread and Jam, Al, not A Slice of Bread and Jam. <laughs> you were nearly there, but yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and obviously, The Slice of Bread and Jam is that bread and jam that was put down on the table for me. Uh, but, we were talking and i told them the story and then, I finished. And you could have heard a pin drop and they were waiting for the pub. They were waiting for the one-liner. And nothing came. And then they were like, well, what, what? You've been serious about this? And I said, yeah, I've been serious about it. And, and of course, then we started discussing my life and God, what led up to this, blah, 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 blah et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then this journalist turned to me and says, you ought to to him. Tell him. Tell him you're still alive. Tell him that you know what you've done. Uh, and I said, I did. You, you won't get an answer from him. He said, well, probably not. But I did anyway. A few weeks later, I wrote a letter to him. That was in 2000. And within a matter of a week, I had a letter come back to me. Uh, I don't know whether it went through the wrong address, but it was an old man that bought it. And he says, oh, he says, there's a letter here for you. Uh, and I took it from him. And I think he lived across one of the other streets. And uh, I opened it, and I was gobsmacked. It had been sellotape at the back, and there was a long slip on there informing me that the letter had been opened by the hospital. Uh, it was signed by Ian Brady, the, the, the actual uh, back of the envelope with the sellotape. So perhaps he'd done that. That I would know if it's been opened or not, but it was opened. Uh, and Ian Brady just says, Dear Mr. Rashid, and I, I remember that off by heart when I needed to get it out of the drawer, uh, you are very much mistaken in your belief that you had an encounter with me. There are lots of people, or there are a number of people who uh, think the same thing. But then, back to the end of that bit, he goes on to complain about Myra Hindley and about her saying this and, and whatever the thing is that she says, but, you know, the people will find out what she is really all about. But the curious thing that he says is, in all the places that we've travelled to and the people that we've met, Not one of them had noticed, or if he did, not cared to mention that we were ordinary people and not drinking blood. And that really shook me. It shook me to the core. I felt so cold when I read those words because he was goading me. He was goading me. He was goading everybody because what he was saying to me was, that's the reason why it was so easy to get kids like them because we looked so ordinary we didn't look like monsters uh, mm. and it, it 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 was really really scary and i've had a few people psychiatrists if you like look at the letter and it says exactly the same thing he's golden there yeah? it's a gold." and that's yeah. what he's saying you know
0: yeah. Yeah, just amazing. Um, so now you've um, have you written all three books now, or is there just two out right now? No,
1: no. I'm, I've I've written a second book. The first book is called 1963: uh, A Slice of Breaking Jam. That dealt with my life at seven years of age, right up to the age of nine. At nine years of age, I was put into care. My parents had cleared off. We didn't see them, they never came back to us, and there was only me and my brother Martin left. We were left at that house all on our own, trying to survive on our own. Me at seven, him at eight. And so we gave ourselves up to the police, uh, and we got a nice meal out of it as well. Uh, and they, then we were put into the care of the uh, local authorities, which was the Manchester uh, uh, authorities, uh, and we were separated. Uh, We were proudly told that we were not good for each other. He went into one home, and I went to an approved school called St. Vincent's Approved School, which was run by a Catholic charity, nuns. Prior to that, it used to be a lunatic asylum. And believe me, I think the nuns were the lunatics that were still there from that era, because they were just absolutely mad. (laughs) <laughs> it was it was mass, 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 mass. That's all it was. Religion, religion, religion. Nothing else. And we were knocked around. Uh, I spent, I think, roughly around about three years of being sexually abused by one particular person. Uh, he groomed me, sexually abused me. I fell for it, and I, I went to him, and I did what, what he wanted me to do for him. Because that was love. I'd never had my parents put their arms around me and give me any love. But he put his arms around me and gave me love. He gave me more than love. Mm. Uh, And that completely, you know, at the time it was going on, that, for me, you know, that was acceptable, because I needed to be loved. I wanted to be loved. And he played on that. That's what happened. But... We live, we were living in a regime of, of the violence from the staff, and then the violence and the sexual how countless and sexual abuse, from a regime of our own peers. I'm nine years of age, but there's 40 year old kids there as well, just coming into puberty, and they're abusing anybody, at all the weak kids, get abused. Mm. Uh, and I, I, learn to look after myself, eventually, you know. I wouldn't let this man abuse me anymore, and I wouldn't let anybody else abuse me anymore. But it took its toll. It took a toll on my, my life, at the age of 15 years of age. When I was released from there, I'd gone into foster parents, uh, and I took their tablets. I took a massive overdose. I lost a complete week of time. I didn't know what had happened. Obviously, they didn't want me now, because... I was a big risk to them, and they didn't want that. Uh, and so that was my life. I was on the bootie, the social services, in and out of other children's homes, and then at 15 years of age, uh, I was basically out in the streets. Although I was still in care, I was out on my own. They found me a flat, found me a little job. I think I was on 50 pence uh, an hour was £4 a week or, you know, £4 a week, £4, £4 a day, sorry. Uh, and I had to survive on that, pay rent. And the social services, I never saw them again. They never gave me any funds or anything like that. And I just went on through life. Uh, I think it was about seven, perhaps eight, genuine suicide attempts. Uh, the last one being jumping over a cliff in front of my own son. Uh, ambulance, police, helicopter, out looking for me. And, you know, I jumped off an 80-foot cliff, out, and I slid down on my back. How how could I slide down on my back? I, I just, I just, I can't fathom it out. And I ended up on a little ledge. About two foot by two foot, about 20 foot off the ground, concrete in the bottom. And all, the mm. only injuries I had, the only injuries was my back. I'd scratched it coming down on the on the short part passing it. Uh, and so I do believe that, you know, I had a guardian angel then, I had a guardian angel at the time of the meeting, the beat then too. And, uh, yeah. But I'm happy to say writing these books and looking at my story has been an eye know open up for me because now I can I'm seeing it for myself. And anybody who suffers from mental health issues, if they can sit down and write about what they're feeling to themselves and be honest with themselves, it's a help. It does help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I've done now, you know, the humour lightens the load. You know, on the second book, uh, I've had mental health uh, people who work in mental health, people, readers who are look, looking after care for children and foster children, have contacted me, wrote letters to me, and says, not only, you know, was it a brutal, honest book, and, and funny at the time. Open opened their eyes up to how people, children like me, when I was a child, ticked. it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it just gave them another perception to look at and, and, and see how people tick. And I would, I would recommend writing to anybody. I would recommend sitting down and writing what they are thinking, what's hurting them, and just open up to yourself. Be honest with yourself. And it just all comes out. You know. And I'm very, very fortunate. You know, I'm very fortunate. I had a fantastic, uh, uh, publishers, uh, in this country. Trinity Mirror, which is a big newspaper company over here. Uh, what we, what I'm hoping for now, and I hope it will really, you know, put this out, I'm hoping for a, an American, Publisher to contact the i-publishers uh, because we're looking for overseas.
0: Well, content. let's hope that um, we've got a publisher listening that wants to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Can I just say? Can I? Can I? Can I just say uh, something else? Huh? Can I? Yeah, can so i um, please, Can I? Can I just uh, say hello to uh, Mary Blue and also Joe Gardner? They are, are members of the, 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 the team that work and produce uh, and get uh, together every single year. In Minnesota, they put on a concert for the 9-11 first responders and those people that perished. Uh, and they also have one of my songs that they use. Uh, I wrote a song for them. Uh, It was written and scored for a full orchestra and a 60-strong choir, and they perform that every single year. And they're also looking for somebody, a select, that would come along and sing the song for them. So all these thousands of people that turn up just to, for one night only, once a year, to remember the first responders of nine eleven and those people that didn't make it out of there. You know, and I think it's a fantastic thing that you know, I think we are the only people uh in the uh, any of the states that actually put that on every single year. So if it's you know a celeb out there or somebody who knows a celeb who wants to come out opera, it doesn't matter. They can sing it any way they want. But it's an absolutely beautiful song. Uh called Beating House. If there's anybody there out, you know. Well, get in touch with, get in touch with you, and you can get in touch with me, and I can put it over to Mary, Blue, and Joe out in America.
0: Well, let's hope for that one too. And uh, yep. uh, again, you know, our guest has been Tommy Radigan, and uh, we have the books up online. And uh, thank you for for taking the time.
1: No, it's a pleasure, and 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 I wish everybody, you know, good health and get those books read them and come on this journey with me to find out more about our show guests or to listen to past shows from our archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com show's over for now was it as good for you as it was for me
0: well good night this has been a production of something weird media
1: I'll be back.